Hey, secret admirers. You like that? That's my name for listeners of this podcast. It's Ryan here. Before we begin, I wanted to preemptively address something about the recording of this episode. I brought in two guests, Paul Scavito and Nathaniel Wayne, to talk about Shazam. The three of us started recording together, but then an emergency pulled Paul away in the middle of our review. So I finished the first recording session with Nathaniel, and then Paul and I wrapped up our discussion during a separate recording. I've tried to edit both sessions together to give as good a sense that it was all one joyous take as possible, but you might be able to tell when it's just two of us on the chat and when I'm splicing a comment in from a different session. Hopefully, none of it will feel too jarring. You'll also notice quite a bit of ambient noise during this recording. That's because Paul was recording in a haunted house, and Nathaniel walks around with a baby monitor that he uses to hear aliens like in the movie Signs. Weird? Perhaps. But it can always get a little weirder when you're talking about Shazam! Welcome to Episode 3 of the Secret Origins Podcast, a review show dedicated to the Secret Origins comics published by DC in the 1980s. I'm your host, Ryan Daly, and I simply could not talk about the secret origin of Captain Marvel with just one co-host. So joining me today are two special guests. First, from the Council of Geeks series on YouTube and a frequent guest on my Star Wars podcast, Dead Boff and Spies plug, is Nathaniel Wayne. How are you doing, Nathaniel? Not doing too bad. Great, great. Thank you very much for appearing here. And next is my very own personal Mr. Mind, the evil worm that whispers dark and terrible thoughts into my ear, my good friend, Paul Scavito. What's up, Paul? Uh, I'm fine. Wow, that was really staticky. Can you say that again? <laughs> <laughs> I, I'm, I'm really happy to be here, Ryan. Thanks for inviting me. Good morning, Dave. <laughs> <laughs> Could not sound less lifelike. <laughs> no, thank you very much for inviting me, Ryan. Well, thank you for both appearing. Um, and before we dive too far into the subject of this episode, I'd like to welcome all of my potential first-time listeners uh, and quickly explain what Secret Origins was, because they might not have heard of it. So if you didn't know... Secret Origins was an anthology series published by DC Comics, with each issue telling or retelling the origin of at least one hero or villain from the DC Universe. The series ran for 50 issues between January of 1986 and June of 1990, and also included three annuals and one special. All told, between the 54 comics with the Secret Origins banner, something like 120 stories were chronicled in the series. Thankfully, this series was published in the 1980s, or all of the stories would be about Batman. So, <laughs> so today we are looking at Secret Origins number three, the secret origin of Captain Marvel, which on the cover says the secret origins Shazam, because they were not allowed to say Captain Marvel on the cover. Paul, what do you know about Shazam? What do you know about Captain Marvel and the character? Well, I had... Um some exposure to Captain Marvel um, when I was younger. My grandparents actually were the ones that sort of first exposed me to comics. They would buy them for me and have them waiting for me during the summer. 
And Captain Marvel was actually a huge um, – my grandfather was a huge fan of Captain Marvel um, when he was younger. Um, and so I had a few Captain Marvel um, comics kind of growing up. Um, he was never one of my favorites but when I was growing up. What I knew about Captain Marvel was that um, there was this boy named Billy Batson. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I'm going to mess up his name right off the bat. Um, Billy Batson and that Billy Batson had this ability where he could say this magic word, Shazam, and he would turn into Captain Marvel. Um, and from there, he was basically, um, for all intents and purposes, like Superman. Um, and I knew that he fought um, a variety of villains and the most prominent being Black Adam. And then I was re-exposed um, to um, Captain Marvel when I um, got into comics again um, through the New 52. And I learned to – I basically fell in love with the character all over again through that experience. And in the New 52, there was a, um, a one of the storylines dealt with Captain Marvel and um, Black Adam in particular. Oh, this was the story 52, not the new 52. Excuse me. I'm sorry. Yes, that's right. Yep, that's right. The 52 yeah, the 50, series, yeah. 52 series, yep. Yep, and that's just to, you know, in brief, my sort of knowledge and background with Captain Marvel, who we have to refer to as Shazam now, right? <laughs> we don't. Uh, Nathaniel, what about you? You're probably much more familiar with the character from outside of comics and other media, right? Yeah, I, I honestly couldn't tell you where I know the character from originally. I think it was something I just kind of absorbed through osmosis and just, you know, being part of geek and comic book culture in general. I never read any of the comics specifically. The only actual comic story that I have a firm memory of his participation in uh, was Kingdom Come, which is obviously, a you know, that's not canon. It's an alternate timeline sort of thing, um, although he's used brilliantly in it, I think. Yeah. Um, yeah. So aside from that, really, my uh, other than just sort of having the general knowledge, which Paul already outlined, the only times I've actually seen anything of him have been in animations. There was uh, there was a short uh, called Return of Black Adam a few years back that I saw. He's appeared in some of the newer um, DC Animated Universe Justice League movies. He was in War. He was in Throne of Atlantis. So that's really my only hands-on uh, time with the character. So I, and I'm actually I'm glad about that because you're coming into this from with different experiences. So your I think your take on his origin story would be very unique. Um, I think yeah I I mean even though this this was before my time I I knew of the the Shazam TV show, but that really didn't have a formative effect on me. I just, I kind of always knew about who he was. And I think also probably kingdom come was one of the first times that I really saw him and really paid attention to him. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's just such a, yeah, for being, for being an out of continuity story. I mean, it was written by Mark Wade, who uh, I, I will stand by the statement that he, he doesn't know how to write a bad comic and <laughs> considering all of the, the elements of that story that were, Outside of the normal DC, I think his his take on the characters was pretty spot on, and he just he knew what made those characters tick. So anyway, all of the information that I've gathered about the publication of history of Captain Marvel and Shazam comes from an essay that Roy Thomas wrote at the back of this issue of Secret Origins, or from the fourth volume of the All Star Companion, and from the always reliable, never inaccurate Wikipedia. So. <laughs> Those are the places where I got this. Uh, The publication history of Captain Marvel was complicated even before his first appearance. 
after Action Comics number one changed the world, comics publishers went to their talent and said, make me a Superman, but not so close to Superman that we get sued. So in 1939, a writer at Fawcett Comics named Bill Parker conceived of a group of six heroes, each with a different power granted by a mythological god or hero. So one would have the wisdom of Solomon, one would have the strength of Hercules, etc. Parker's editor decided to combine the heroes into one character with six mighty powers. The new hero was originally named Captain Thunder, a name that actually makes sense given his powers and this alter ego was named Billy Batson. Now, these names were not simply pulled out of thin air. They were inspired by the founder of Fawcett Comics, a man named Wilford H. Fawcett. This guy was a World War I veteran whose nickname was Captain Billy. This is where the names Billy Batson and the Captain part of his alter ego come from. And it suggests that Captain Billy Fawcett either had a heavy hand in the character's creation or someone at his company was really eager for a promotion. With the name and the concept in place, more or less, artist Charles Clarence Beck, better known as C.C. Beck, came aboard to design the look of the character and draw what the public would see as his first adventure in Wiz Comics number 2. And the reason I phrased it that way is because Captain Marvel's first story was told no less than three times before his character ever hit newsstands. In the golden age of comics, companies would frequently print an Ashcan edition of their comic. And publishing an Ashcan means they only printed two or three copies. One copy that they sent to the Library of Congress, and another for their own records. These books were never intended for mass distribution. It was just to secure the copyright. And I mention all of that because Fawcett Comics had a bitch of a time copywriting Captain Marvel. And perhaps that was a bad omen of things to come. The first story of Captain Marvel, who again was originally called Captain Thunder, was printed in Fawcett's Flash Comics Ashcan. But when they submitted the issue to the Library of Congress, Fawcett discovered that All-American Comics, one of the companies that would eventually merge to become DC, had already secured the copyright to that title with the publication of their own Flash Comics number 1. That was the book that introduced the original Flash and Hawkman, among others. So Fawcett tried submitting the Captain Thunder story again in the retitled Thrill Comics number one. This too was rejected as another comic called Thrill had popped up elsewhere. To further complicate the issue, while Fawcett scrambled to come up with the names for the title, as many as five other superhero characters with thunder in their names came out. So someone at Fawcett suggested Captain Marvelous, and the editors trimmed that down to Captain Marvel, thankfully taking more inspiration from the company's first published magazine, which was titled Captain Billy's Whiz Bang, they tried out Captain Marvel in Whiz Comics number one, and the two names stuck. At least for a while. Now, this is the crazy part. Well, that was all pretty crazy, but this part. During the early and mid-1940s, Captain Marvel was huge. He was the best-selling superhero in the world. He starred in three different serial publications, Wiz Comics, Captain Marvel Adventures, and The Marvel Family. For a time, these books sold in the tens of millions of dollars range every issue. And for comparison's sake, last month's top-selling issue was about 200,000 copies every issue. Um. Yeah. National Comics, the other company that formed DC, sued Fawcett over copyright infringement back in 1941, claiming that Captain Marvel was a ripoff of Superman. The lawsuit lasted 10 years, going through litigation and at least three court rulings. 
1952, Fawcett didn't have the money or the energy to keep fighting the lawsuit. Sales of superhero comics had dried up severely in the years after World War II, and the publications with Captain Marvel crashed. Instead of fighting for a product that was no longer making them a lot of money, Fawcett settled with DC Comics. They paid something close to half a million dollars in damages, and more importantly, agreed to never again publish a Captain Marvel comic. After the cancellation of Wiz Comics, Marvel Family, and Captain Marvel Adventures, Fawcett Publications shut down its comics division. By the 1960s, the copyright to the name Captain Marvel had lapsed, and Martin Goodman, the publisher of Marvel Comics, decided he needed to have it. According to various sources, he all but ordered Stan Lee to create a new Captain Marvel so they could have the trademark. Stan did as he was told, writing a 15-page story that introduced Captain Marvel as an alien soldier come to Earth. But after that first story, Lee handed the book off to none other than Roy Thomas, the writer of this comic, to continue telling Captain Marvel stories so Marvel could hold the trademark. The settlement between Fawcett and DC stipulated that Fawcett couldn't publish any more Captain Marvel comics. But DC could, so in the early 70s, they licensed the character from Fawcett. Remember, DC sued because they said Captain Marvel was a ripoff of Superman, and now the company that published Superman wanted to also publish Captain Marvel. Of course, by this time, they couldn't use the name Captain Marvel in the publication's title. Marvel had that trademark locked up. They could still call Billy Batson's alter ego Captain Marvel, but the book had to be rebranded, and the obvious substitute was Shazam. DC published Shazam No. 1 in December 1972, written by Denny O'Neill and drawn by C.C. Beck, the original artist who drew the Captain in Wiz Comics. The series lasted 35 issues and went through a number of writers and artists, never gaining anything close to the popularity the character had in the 40s. After the series ended, the adventures of Captain Marvel continued in World's Finest and Adventure Comics in the late 70s and early 80s. And that brings us up to about when this comic came out. So, how crazy does that sound to you guys? It is pretty crazy. Um, and note um, of interest um, from the world of musical theater. <laughs> um, Captain Willie's Whizbang mm-hmm. is actually mentioned in uh, the musical The Music Man um, by the lead character in one of the songs um, as one of the... Um, signs that your child is falling in um, with a bad scene. <laughs> um, and he, I, I can't quite find the exact lyric, but it's something about the, um, the fact that he's going to be quoting jokes from Captain Willie's Whizbang. Um, and that's one of the things you got to be looking out for in his song <laughs> um, titled Trouble. <laughs> well, you know, so, it, out of context, completely separated from this idea of a superhero comic. If you just heard Captain Billy's whiz bang, I, I can see how that might cause some parents consternation <laughs> if they think that their impressionable son or daughter is ooh, doing something with Captain Willie's whiz bang. Yes. Yeah. Anyway, I thought you'd enjoy knowing that. <laughs> I do. I do. Yeah. There's even more to it than that that I didn't even go into because the UK would reprint issues of the original Captain Marvel comics. And when Fawcett stopped publishing them, the demand in the UK was still really strong. So they kept creating basically the same stories, but they called it Marvel Man, and they slightly tweaked the character. And then after a while, after the 
that well that ended up becoming Miracle Man because they had to I change was, the I was going to say that this just that, that just crossed over into something else that I know that's really screwed up. Yeah, the the issue between Marvel Man and Miracle Man which is where Alan Moore cut his teeth for a while. Um, and that's that's all based on the same idea, the same character that had to be tweaked and changed because of the licensing. It is interesting that the um, character originally started with those six members mm-hmm. um, because I believe that's what they tried to do when they relaunched under – in the new – oh, it was either in the new 52 or it was right before the relaunch. It they, was Flashpoint. They kind of had something similar to that as Flashpoint. Um that yeah, the Flashpoint miniseries they started with, like the the sort of Captain Marvel family where there were six different kids, right? And but it, it was a thing where they they did sort of unite to become almost like a Captain Planet type of thing, right. where they all kind of had a different representation of the character. Aquaman and Firestorm fighting crime together. Soak them down or burn them up. No one does it better. Fire and Water Podcast, celebrating Aquaman, King of the Seven Seas, and Firestorm, the Nuclear Man. Available weekly on Aquaman Trine, Firestorm Van, and on iTunes and Stitcher. I'm one of your hosts, the Irredeemable Shag, here to talk about Firestorm. Along with me is my co-host, Rob Kelly, here to talk about some guy that talks to fish. Really? You're going to pull this crap during the promo? Bad enough, I have to put up with your shenanigans every week, but... All right, we're back, and we are looking at Secret Origins, Issue 3. What do you think of the cover? You know, it's iconic. Um, I mean, it's, it, it's, it's appropriately character-centric. I mean, it's just Captain Marvel, front and center, bulging muscles, lightning in the back, and that's it. There's nothing else in the background. He's not punching anybody, so it's just like, look, this is all we're dealing with right now is just this guy. And you definitely get the sense of the power in this cover. But when you turn to page one, I really like that splash page a lot more. Mm, I think that's well, fair. I think I think the cover was is much more just going with the times that the thing that the thing was released in, whereas the splash page, and I'm sure we'll get into this, uh, is a bit more of a happy medium between the comic sensibilities of the time and what the thing was like at the time it was first created. Yeah, that's probably true. That's a good point. Yeah, I was actually thinking the exact same thing. Yeah, and notice notice again on that splash page, it's Secret Origins starring Captain Marvel. They address him as Captain Marvel. Yes. That is the official title of the story, but they couldn't print that on the cover. The cover just says Secret Origins Shazam. Interestingly enough, um, this splash page, while I do like it, it does kind of look like um, there's Captain Marvel and his kid sidekick. <laughs> It um, does a bit. Yeah. Also, does he have a floral print on his cape? <laughs> um, it's, it, they look. They look like they look, they look like my daughter's drawing of butterflies. What they look like? I just. I think he needs nice. that. I think he the, needs more butterflies or flowers. I mean, on his I'm not cape. saying they're not nice because they are nice. Um, but yeah. just just curious. <laughs> <clears throat> yeah. 
Okay, let's get into our synopsis for the story, which we have divided into three parts, and I will kick things off. This issue was cover dated June 1986. The actual on-sale date would have been March 13, 1986, according to Mike's Amazing World of Comics. The Secret Origin of Captain Marvel was written, slash adapted, by Roy Thomas, with pencils by Jerry Bingham, inks by Steve Mitchell, letters by David Cody Weiss, and colors by Carl Gafford. The story was very, very faithfully based on the classic tale by Bill Parker and C.C. Beck from Wiz Comics number 1 in 1940. It's raining in Fawcett City, one of America's major hubs, like Gotham and Metropolis. Back in 1939, people didn't get alerts on their smartphones, so newsboys barked out headlines to get passers-by interested in buying their papers. Young Billy Batson stands in the rain, shouting out the turmoil engulfing Europe, when he is approached by an utterly terrifying figure. A man, or at least something in the shape of a man, he wears a heavy black jacket and a hat, his face is all in shadows, we only see the white slits for his eyes. This stranger asks Billy, why aren't you in bed, son? The appropriate response would be for Billy to run, screaming. Anybody would. Instead, he tells the stranger that he's homeless and sleeps in a subway station, which is not what anybody should say. <laughs> the stranger tells Billy to follow him, and for reasons inexplicable to a rational adult in this century, Billy follows the man into an old abandoned part of the subway. On a closed line that hasn't run for years, Billy is shocked to hear the arrival of an oncoming train. What pulls to a stop at the station, though, is unlike any train you've ever seen. As Billy describes it, it's so big, with lights like dragon's eyes, funny designs all over it, and not even a window for the driver to see out of. The stranger and Billy board the train and it roars off, taking them to the edge of the line, which isn't so much like a train station as a massive underground cavern. Walking down a long rocky hall, Billy utters his famous holy moly line for the first time when he sees a row of giant statues of the seven deadly enemies of man. The statues represent pride, envy, greed, hatred, selfishness, laziness, and injustice. In front of each statue burns an eternal flame. At the end of the hall sits an ancient-looking man in a high-backed stone chair. Above the man, a stone block dangles precariously from a flimsy rope tied to a stalactite. Also, because things aren't weird enough, the strange man in black who led Billy this far has vanished into thin air. The old man, who knows Billy's name, introduces himself as Shazam. A crack of thunder and lightning fill the cave when he says the name. The wizard tells Billy the source of his name and his power. Three thousand years ago, he gained the wisdom of Solomon, the strength of Hercules, the stamina of Atlas, the power of Zeus, the courage of Achilles, and the speed of Mercury to battle evil. Along with virtual omniscience, Shazam watched Billy Batson grow up, saw the death of Billy's parents, saw his uncle cast him out into the streets, everything that led Billy to this point. The wizard tells Billy that his millennia of fighting injustice is nearly over, and that Billy is his successor. He commands the child to say his name. Billy's a little distracted by the frayed rope holding the stone block above the wizard, but whatever. In a moment that will forever change Billy Batson's life, he speaks the magic word. Shazam! So, let's take a break there. What did you guys think of the opening, you know, the first act of this story? Uh, I did. I just gotta say that I, I don't get this comic. And when I say that, what I mean is not having read 
any earlier Shazam comics and not knowing if it's something that they kept doing throughout the run of the thing. But I I can't figure out what the point of this is because if the the way it's written and the way Billy not only acts but speaks, which is to literally say out loud every little thought that crosses his mind and in addition to that to describe what the reader can already see – like like the train, as you said, he describes it, you know, it's got lights like dragon's eyes. He says that out loud. Plus, we can already see it. We don't need him to say that. It's very evocative of of an older, I mean, way older way that comics were written. But I don't understand why this comic is written like that. Because if you're updating the origin story for a modern audience, even modern at the time this came out, I can't think of a faster way to make people go, what the heck, and alienate everybody than to do that. And if you're going to stay that true to the way it was written originally, just reprint the original version of the story. My, I'll, I'll hold on to my response to that. Paul, thoughts? Um, so I think that one of the – I mean where they lost me in this opening is the creepy man – um, sequence where Billy just decides that he's going to follow this dude um, into an abandoned subway. Which um, is page one leading into page two, so it lost you pretty quick. Right. And so the and the issue with this for me is that they haven't painted Billy as kind of a gee whiz sort of trusting kid. This guy clearly looks dangerous. Like he look, he seems stupid. Um and and that seems to be a different distinction from being overly trusting. Mm-hmm. Um, beyond that, I think um, sort of Nathaniel's critique, I would say that I feel like they have kind of captured the sort of gee whiz nature of him. If you take the creepy guy in the black costume out. Um, but, you know, the sequence going down into the tunnel, getting on, on the train, everything's going to be fine. Billy doesn't ask a question once about really what's going on. He just kind of accepts it (laughs) and that seems really problematic for um you know this character being heroic at all because if you i feel like that if you're going to be heroic you probably should be able to tell when things are going wrong and you know there's a there's the cynical part of me actually wonders if anything from when the train shows up later actually happens or if it's just the fantasy that Billy's mind comes up with to deal with the horror of what this strange man did to him when he lured him down into the subway. <laughs> oh, man, oh, yeah, all kinds of weird metaphors with this. Um. <laughs> <laughs> so Roy Thomas, the writer, um, yep. who was also the editor, loved the golden age era of comics. That's when he started reading. That's the reason he got into comics and he got in at an early time. He got, he started writing in the sixties for Marvel. He'd been writing before that, but he was the first person to write the Avengers after Stan Lee left the book, but he absolutely loved the golden age DC heroes so much. So, yeah. So much so that when he came to DC in the seventies, he basically just carved out his fiefdom with those characters um, who were being told on alternate universes and in books like All-Star Comics and All-Star Squadron. And he said, these are mine. I, I will control these characters. You don't get to use them without my permission. So this whole series, Secret Origins, was his brainchild because, and it, this addresses one of your concerns, Nathaniel, he wanted to revisit those classic origins from the 30s and 40s. But they just didn't have a market. The uh, The current readers in the 80s wouldn't buy 
those stories as they were originally written and more importantly as they were drawn it just seemed too archaic so the idea was to just sort of retell them to jazz them up with modern art and modern scripts well the modern art i'll give him i the script feels very archaic and that's because sometimes he was just too too beholden and too faithful like most of the dialogue in this is redone directly from the original story by bill parker and he he would occasionally add his own flourishes when something needed to be explained but a lot of this was was straight from that original story and i agree it's i i don't know if you're actually serving the story or if you're if you're not making it your own. Um, but I think he just, he was too protective of the source material. Now, ironically, two years after this or one year after this, he would actually redo Captain Marvel's origin for the modern setting in the eighties for DC. And he would still create this sort of fairy tale opening of the kid who finds the old man at the bottom at the, in the subway tunnel and becomes Shazam. But he made it make a lot more sense and put a lot more, tension and drama into Billy's situation. So he didn't appear to be just an idiot, just following this, this man who's certainly a serial killer into the the bowels of New York. I I think the problem is the art and, and you know, for as much complaining as I'm doing about the script, the art is gorgeous. It's really, really well done art, but that is sort of why it loses me. There is an immediate disconnect between what I'm seeing and what I'm reading because what I'm seeing is of one era, and what I'm reading is of another, and they're not meshing. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, I will say that what he does with panel layout is amazing throughout this thing. He is playing with, um, in particular, if you're looking at page three, um, the top three panels on this page um, kind of lay on top of each other. Mm-hmm. And it is really nice. Um, it breaks up the page just beautifully. Um, and he does it a lot. He plays with um, page con- panel construction all over the place. And I don't think you find a standard six panel page in this entire book um, as it goes through. He, yep. he does break it up and make it a lot more visually. Oh, yeah. yeah. Yep. So, yeah. Um, I did actually want to talk about that first part, him going into the, and what the writers were trying to do with that. Yep. As foolish as I think Billy is to do that, and I'm sure later writers address this by probably removing that character altogether or by changing his nature to get Billy into the, into the subway station, what I think they're trying to do is sort of the, what I see is like the point of Billy Batson is – is it Batson or Baston? Batson. Batson, okay. Oh, I get it. Bruce Wayne's kid? <laughs> Um, all right. Um, anyway, the um, leave that for another time. The, no, <laughs> no, we're just not going to ever talk about that. Um, okay, so um, where were we? Uh, the okay, so the guy. So what they're trying to do with that is that they're trying to establish that Billy is is at heart a good kid, and he trusts people. He believes in people. And he believes in the goodness in people. And I think that there is a difference between naivete and stupidity. And and I think what they're trying to play up is that Billy really does believe in the goodness of other people. And that if somebody like was asking him to come with them, that they 
you know, they don't want to harm him. They just want him to come with him because, you know, and so I think that that's what the writers were going for. I also think the writers want us to understand that Billy really is naive and, and that is that his trusting of people is probably going to get him in trouble later. And, and that his ability to just sort of place this, um, place this blind trust in people is not well suited to this real and dangerous world that he lives in, even when he has these powers and maybe especially when he has these powers, um, that that's going to backfire on him. And so I think that's really what was going on there. And I think that's what the writers were going for with that piece. Now, I think the problem is, is that anyone who reads it has this kind of like knee jerk reaction is like, ah, don't go into the basement with the strange man, really sort of feeling. But anyway, that's my take on it. Yeah. Um, Now, I just want to ask this question before we move too far on and and, uh, I missed the chance to bring it up. Do we ever at any point in any comic ever find out what the deal with the serial killer child molester dude whose face we never see is? I mean, is he a projection of Shazam? Because he shows up and he leaves Billy down and he vanishes and we never get an explanation of who or what he is. Uh, yeah, it's so far as I know, it's always intended to be the wizard's projection of something to to basically get Billy's attention, because in updates of the story, it, it sometimes Billy sees like an image of something that looks like his father going down into the subway tunnel, and that's what makes him run down there looking for it because he thinks he sees his his dead father down there. Um, so it's it's always sort of just assumed that the wizard is just casting illusions to basically bring Billy down to him mm-hmm. and that whatever that uh, sort of, I guess it's sort of like the, uh, the introduction to Dracula when Jonathan Harker gets on the, the carriage, the horse drawn carriage that takes him to the castle. When we later find out that it was Dracula kind of driving the carriage. Yeah. Yeah. So. Okay. Um, I mean, I, I figured out that's what it was. It just, it just bothered me, especially considering how, how much that, mysterious figure dominated certain panels early on that there wasn't even a, a, a token one line send off. Yeah. That, that should be a bigger deal. I mean, and to be fair, this trope, the, the Herald kind of character yep. Yep. Um, is used everywhere. Right. And so it's not like they're inventing, you know, reinventing the wheel with this storytelling device. And it's actually maybe the most logical thing you could do is put a character in that Billy doesn't know that sort of calls him to adventure. All right. Any other notes before we move on? Don't think so. No. All right. Paul, you want to handle the second section? Absolutely. So we're going to be uh, looking at pages eight through 15. A thunder crack and a lightning bolt explode in the mysterious cave. Out of the smoke emerges Billy Batson as Captain Marvel. Billy is clearly confused by what has just happened. The wizard tells Captain Marvel what his new name is and that it'll be his sacred duty to defend the poor, helpless, right wrongs, and crush evil wherever he finds it. To which Captain Marvel responds with an understandable, uh, yes, sir. (laughs) Despite his newfound powers and list of responsibilities, Captain Marvel's mind is drawn back to the dangling block of granite floating above the wizard's head. He points out that all the wizard need do is move a little bit and he'll be safe. The wizard remains unconcerned and tells Billy that his time is drawing to an end. The wizard asks, then asks Captain Marvel to say the magic word once again. With another crash of thunder and explosion of lightning, the granite block falls on the wizard, killing him. 
We next see Billy outside at the subway entrance. He's trying to decide if anything that just happened was real or just a dream. After a few moments of indecision, Billy runs back inside to see if there is actually an old man that has been crushed by a giant rock. When he gets back inside the station, he finds the gate is locked and long unused. No doubt confused, our young hero falls asleep at the bottom of the stairs under a blanket of newspaper. The next morning, Billy is awoken by a plomp from his load of newspapers landing next to him. It's time for Billy to get to work and for our main storyline to begin. On the cover of the paper, we can see a tantalizing headline that reads, Phantom Scientist Threatens U.S. Radio System Demands Five Million by Midnight Tonight. We jump ahead to see Billy working on the street, hawking his papers. In a brief moment, we hear a customer and Billy talking. The customer asks, Think they'll pay, Billy? Billy responds with, Doesn't seem like you can bargain with crooks, but... This is immediately followed by two shady characters buying a paper from Billy. One of them quips to the other, Want to read about the boss, huh? Sensing that something is not right with these guys, Billy follows them to their fancy hotel where he's turned away by a doorman who bears a striking resemblance to Clark Kent. We cut to Billy um, trying to argue his way in to see the president of Wiz Radio, but he's being rebuffed by the president's personal assistant. Finally, knowing the stakes, Billy charges headlong into the office of the president to make his case. After recovering from being tackled by the assistant, Billy is allowed 15 seconds to tell his story. The president seems to believe Billy's story until he finds out that these suspicious men are staying at the Sky Tower apartments. Up to that point, he says, I'll admit, I thought you might be onto something. Why don't you tell me he lives at City Hall or the Capitol Dome in Washington, D.C.? With that, Billy is unceremoniously kicked out of the office and is back on the street. Billy decides to try and find the answers on his own, and he tries to figure out a way into Sky Tower Apartments' penthouse. He manages to get on the roof of a nearby office building, but even that isn't high enough to matter. Then he has a thought. Gosh, that dream I had. If only it had been true. Billy says the magic word, and with a huge thunderclap and lightning strike, Captain Marvel appears. Holy moly. Billy can feel the power of Captain Marvel coursing through him. He feels faster, stronger, braver, and smarter. Smart enough to not just know how to figure out the trajectory that he needs to jump between the two buildings, but also knowing what trajectory means. What did you think of this section? Well, um, go ahead, Nathan. Well, I'll say this. I appreciate it when, granted, in context of the story, it comes out of nowhere, but when Billy starts finally using thought bubbles instead of speaking every single right. word he says right. out loud. Now, granted, it's on uh, – it's literally at about the halfway mark through the story that that finally begins happening. But it was a relief. You know, I think you know one of the things that I really liked about this piece where Billy gets his powers for the first time – one, I like the fact that he questions whether it was real or not. I'm glad that he just doesn't accept it sort of outright from the beginning right. because I think that's natural. I think that we would do that. Um, and I think that oftentimes there's this assumption in superhero in the superhero universe that people get powers and they're like, cool, I got powers. That's neat. And nobody ever asks, like, maybe that was com- a complete psychic break and um, or some kind of, you know, fever-based, you know, illusion that um, I was under. Especially if he's sleeping outside in a subway station, <laughs> like under newspapers. Maybe, and, maybe and, you know, and he's – I think that that's reasonable and he, do, he does that. He says, OK, maybe that, that was kind of crazy. <laughs> maybe that was a dream. Um, I guess the other thing – and this is probably another issue with being very beholden to whatever the original script was. But the, uh, the scheme that Billy and now Captain Marvel are, is setting out to foil is – really low-key and seems really beneath somebody with this degree of power. Yeah. 
Yeah, I mean, I say it is in keeping with at least Superman's original range of villains, right? The um, mobsters, mm-hmm. um, the gang lords, um, and at least in this case, it's a phantom scientist, which I love um, <laughs> as a villain. In fact, he could have just been the phantom scientist, and I would have been happy with that. But I think you're right. The stakes are um, a little low in terms of knocking out all the radios. Um, even though they expand that later. Uh, I, mean, it's one of those I just wanted that, to go ahead. It's one of those things I stop and think about. It, it's like, yeah, that would have been a big problem at the time. But you say that and I immediately kind of shrug my shoulders and go, you thought they were going to pay you five million dollars over that? Really? <laughs> right. So just a, a a couple sort of really quick things. Let's say he does accept that it's a dream. That's fine. He still watched an old man get crushed under a granite block. And I don't know. He just, huh? I guess that was a dream or whatever. And have you and not seen that? And, right. Well, and then later when he does confirm that it wasn't in fact a dream, he still watched an old man get crushed by a granite block. Um, <laughs> he's, he's not not the most inquisitive mind going. It's kind of a big deal to hatch that happen in front of you, and he doesn't really seem to process it. I mean, maybe he's just in denial. So. Um, I'm sorry about the Clark Kent um, doorman reference, but when I looked at him, I was like, is that that Superman working a door? And I I did just want to point out that he is wearing Captain Marvel's colors. Um, He's dressed in gold and red. And you don't make coloring decisions on accident in a comic. Everything's done on purpose. Um, And near as I can tell, it's the only other character that has that coloring scheme. And so I don't know. I if this was um, just a, a like a silly tongue in cheek kind of way of mm-hmm. of including this, or maybe I'm just reading too much into it. But um, well, the funny thing is, in the first issue of this series, Secret Origins One, which is about the Golden Age Superman, there's a scene where Super or Clark Kent walks by a kid like selling newspapers and the kid is designed to look just like Billy Batson. And he's saying Billy's first line from page one, Wuxtry, Wuxtry, read all about it. Mm-hmm. Um, so it is kind of, yeah, it, it, I think there might be a little bit of play at this of making him have that sort of appearance. I, it, it would, it would be meaningful if that was somehow meant to like sort of inspire Billy to say the word and remind himself that like, Oh yeah, I could look like that, but it really has nothing Nothing yeah. going on. No, it's just so I, I, it is just kind of there, and I'm probably just reading too much into it. There, there's this line where he's selling his papers where he says, doesn't seem to me like you can bargain with crooks. That line kind of hung with me. It's like the one, it's like the fifth panel on the page. It's this little tiny thing. It's kind of a throwaway line, it seems like. But it felt like to me what the writer was trying to do was to give us a little bit of the insight into Billy's um, philosophy mm-hmm. about dealing with criminals. And I don't know that I necessarily agree with this particular philosophy. Maybe I don't know. I mean, what he's basically saying is what we say today, which is that we don't um, negotiate with terrorists. Mm-hmm. Right. And that the only solution is you just gotta, you just gotta take them out. Right. You just gotta deal with them. And um, my only issue with this particular line is this is a whole lot less aw shucks. Can we kind of figure it out? And it's more like there are problems in the world and they need terrible solutions. Um, yeah, so, it so. seems – it doesn't necessarily seem like something that would come out of a mo- the mouth of a kid. No. 
and and so I don't know, I I don't know what that I don't know what that line is. So anyway, I'll just leave it at that. I don't I really don't know what to do with that line, um, but it it bothered me. <laughs> um, and you can't bargain with crooks. Okay, all right. Um, I guess I guess we don't. Then we just just take them out. Um. <laughs> Again, and it probably keeps all coming back to he basically did a copy-paste job on the original script. But they they keep giving lengthy time and explanation to characters and things that don't seem important at all. Like Mr. Morris, the guy who heads the radio. Heck, Mr. Morris's assistant gets like a little mini explanation and he gets he gets a featured panel. Right. And it's – and. You know, not knowing if these characters ever become important later, maybe it's some kind of nod to that. But as someone who's coming into this cold, it's just like you're spending a lot of effort on these guys who I don't know from anything and who don't seem important to this story. Right. I think this was an example where the story suffered a little bit more because Thomas was being too protective of the original material and yeah. then he, and then again like i said a year later he corrected that mistake because he rewrote billy's origin as a four-part miniseries it was called shazam a new beginning and he did update it and he did put his own flourish his own spin on it he was able to take ownership of it and and really give it an update so you look at that and you're like this was this issue really was just kind of a love letter of doing fan service to the original story, but I wonder if the audience for this was anybody other than himself. I mean, yeah. maybe maybe people who are still. I mean, it was only forty years after the original publication, but I don't I don't know how I, many of them were still reading the book. I'm sure there were some people who were nostalgic about it, but I mean, if the if the idea behind Secret Origins is to is to either retell these characters in the modern age or to hook modern readers in on them, this thing's kind of fallen down on its face. Well, this one, the, the series came out after the end of Crisis on Infinite Earths. And what Crisis established was a new continuity. Yeah. And the Secret Origins series, when it started to explore the Golden Age characters, it was sort of resetting them on a new timeline where they did exist in the 30s and 40s. And they, it was a sort of past tense, but they were now on a timeline that fit in with all of the other heroes. The only time that this series, Secret Origins, breaks from that is with three stories. The Golden Age Superman in issue one, the Golden Age Batman in issue six, and this one. These are the only three stories that are acknowledged to be not in the post-crisis continuity. Like these, He is addressing characters that no longer exist. This is not the Captain Marvel that fans will be reading about when they open up Justice League in uh, a year after this. I mean, Roy Thomas loved this story. He, 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 he called this one of the great American fairy tales, or folk tales, the origin of Captain Marvel, that this kid finds a wizard and with one magic word, this wish fulfillment, that he can become a Superman character. So I think he was just trying to give this one last spin, one last whirl, before this type of character went away. Yeah, and I mean, I, I get that on an intellectual level, but on an audience level, on a readership level, just no. Yeah, <laughs> just just no. And I mean, I think I think you kind of nailed it when you called it a, you know, a love letter to the golden age. And I always kind of 
I have generally the same reaction to love letter projects. I'm like, okay, I get that you really care about this, but you're failing to make me care about it. Like to, just to pull the first example off the top of my head, I, I really didn't care for Martin Scorsese's film Hugo hmm. because – Halfway through, it abandoned the actual narrative it was telling to become uh, a complete love letter to um, – I, I, I'm going to butcher the guy's name, but George um, Millier's or – Yeah, Millier, yeah. Yeah, and, and, you know, and that's fine. I'm not saying the guy doesn't deserve recognition, but you derailed your own narrative just to write an extended love letter to this guy and you've lost me. <laughs> right, and even bringing it back to the DC superheroes, Superman Returns. Yeah, one of one of the many complaints that the film gets, and we've talked about. I like the movie more than a lot of people, but one of the admitted complaints that I would level at the movie was Brian Singer wasn't telling his own story; he was just retelling one of Dick Donner's stories. Yeah, he he wrote a love letter to the first two Superman, and while you and I did enjoy it, I think that's part of because we already shared his love for those movies, mm-hmm. and so. But that's part of the reason why Superman Returns failed to connect with newer audiences. Yes. Yeah. Because it's, it's that same thing. It's like, okay, I get that you love this, but you're not giving me a reason to love it. Yeah. So. All right. Well, let's look at the final leg of this story. All right. Home stretch. Yep. Captain Marvel lands on a ledge on the Sky Tower apartments near a window in which a woman is wrapped in a towel. Even though he is spotted, he quickly leaps upwards, nearly clearing the entire building. On the way back down, he lands on the ledge by the penthouse. And through a window, he sees the two men he'd followed earlier. Inside the penthouse, one of them opens a curtain to reveal a television, which is how they're expecting to be contacted by the boss, even though one of them is openly dismissive of the device. An image comes into focus on the TV as the boss, revealed now to go by the name Master Sivana, appears on the screen. He berates his henchmen uh, before saying that the radio stations did not pay his ransom. One of his henchmen places a hand on the switch of a large device in the room as Master Savannah begins a countdown to midnight. With a defiant, no, Captain Marvel smashes through the penthouse window to a response of, what the hell, from the minions. Marvel declares that his name is Captain Marvel as he picks up the nearest minion and adds, your name is Mud, as he throws the man into the, into the silencer, smashing it to bits. Captain Marvel is amazed at the ease with which he picked up and threw the grown man, and it takes him a moment to realize that the other man has pulled a gun and is firing at him. The bullets bounce off harmlessly and don't even pierce his red suit, causing Marvel to think that this must be the power of Zeus. The minion who fired the gun, believing only that the outfit is bulletproof rather than Captain Marvel himself, throws his spent pistol at it. Marvel easily catches it and bends the barrel with one hand. The inner monologue of Billy, expressing thoughts like, this is fun, appear as thought bubbles during this scene. The disarmed henchman runs to the elevator and immediately starts to take it down. Captain Marvel rips the door off the elevator shaft and grabs onto the cables. He begins to pull the elevator back up, noting to himself that this must be the stamina of Atlas. He then pulls the henchman from the elevator and punches him out, thinking to himself that he appears to know instinctively how to pull his punches so as not to kill the man outright. He then turns his attention to the man on the TV screen, now insisting that he be called Dr. Savannah. The infuriated villain declares the captain to be a big red cheese 
And when Marvel replies with sticks and stones, the mad doctor says that it's like he's talking to an overgrown infant. Doctor slash master Savannah slash phantom scientist slash the boss then declares that the hero hasn't seen the last of him in typical vanquished villain fashion. Captain Marvel responds by picking up what's left of the radio silencer and throwing it at the television, stating that next time he'll see Savannah behind bars or dead. A statement which seems uh, to be a bit of a surprise to even himself. Billy thinks perhaps it's Captain Marvel who said it and not him, even though they are the same person. Then he just brushes it off as confusing, shouts Shazam, and changes back to his younger form once more. He then picks up the phone and calls Mr. Morris, instructing him to come over to the penthouse immediately. It then cuts to Billy, wrapping up the story of how Captain Marvel stopped the wicked plot Billy then inquires as to a job that Mr. Morris had promised him in a bit of a hyperbolic flourish earlier in the issue. And he reminds the older man that it was an announcer job that he wanted when uh, the mailroom is the first thing mentioned by the businessman. As the two depart, Mr. Morris says that he can't shake the feeling that Billy knows more about Captain Marvel than he's letting on. Billy says that he knows almost nothing about the superhero, but that he plans to learn if it takes him a lifetime. The story ends with the older man and the young boy walking away from the reader as a somewhat ghostly image of Captain Marvel flies forward and the caption notes, Fawcett City. If you can make it there, you can make it anywhere. Maybe all you need is one magic word. So. Did the last half change your opinions about anything? (laughs) The last stretch of this thing dropped a couple nuggets that I wish there was something done with, um, which I suppose I'll come back to. But, I mean, the first thing that jumped out to me is uh, how many names does this villain need? Uh, he's generally just referred to as Dr. Savannah. I'm sure this was lifted from the original Bill Parker script that he was called Master Savannah or the boss, and he they, they just uh, – I don't think they were thinking about it that much. I wish Roy Thomas had just streamlined it and just called it Dr. Savannah because that's what he was known Always after that. Yeah. So I, I figured that was probably a recurring villain given the whole, you know, you will see each other again thing. Oh, oh yeah. I, a lot of people point to Black Adam as the most sort of recognized and most glamorous of Captain Marvel villains. But really, I mean, Black Adam only had about a dozen appearances before the 80s. Um, he he wasn't that popular, and or he wasn't that frequently used in the comics. Really, back, Captain Marvel's arch nemesis was Doctor Savannah. Huh. So, and then uh, later, a character named Mister Mind, who was this tiny little super intelligent worm that gathered together what was called the Monster Society of Evil, um, which was just a, a team of all sorts of crazy monster villains and robot villains and a lot of fun stuff that you know the hero could beat up. So. Yeah. I like the action sequence. I like, um, in particular, out of the whole scene, I like him talking about the fact that he has to be careful with his strength. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, he says, but I don't know um, how long this Captain Marvel business will last, um, which I really like, and sort of putting a question into the mind of the reader. Like, um, we already know that these powers aren't forever. Mm-hmm. Um, and But he, it's it, that's a great question for him to be wondering. Because how long do I get to keep this stuff? How long do I get to be Captain Marvel? I think those are fair things for a kid to be thinking about. Especially if this is just sort of a gift that he gets 
almost randomly. Right. I mean, a kid who comes from nothing probably wouldn't expect to hold on to this forever. He would, right. You know, he would expect to have this sort of taken away from him, like most of the things have been taken from him. Right. Exactly. Right. Because he has nothing in his world. In fact, the clothes he probably wears as Captain Marvel are probably way better than um, like the stuff that he gets otherwise. Um, and then just that sequence where the just a little good thing I seem to know how to pull my punch um, or they had to scoop this guy up with a shovel. Mm-hmm. That's great. It's just fantastic. It's nothing that ever really gets explicitly addressed um, in the books. I don't think. Like we never really talk about the fact that that when you know Clark is dealing with you know some group that he's dialing back his hits ten percent or twenty percent or something like that, and in this case we have an expl- an explicit mention in it. Um, ex- excuse me, an explicit mention of the fact that the superheroes have to be really careful when fighting humans because they could just really kill them. Yeah. Um, and so I really I don't know I really like that. Also, and I think maybe just because he's a kid, where he like rips the so. Let me see, go back to the beginning of the sequence. Um, so the guy throws a gun at him, right, after trying to shoot him, because that's going to work. And um, Billy catches and crushes the gun in his hand. Wow. And so the guy, this, I'm on page 19 here, he says, Yo, you ain't human. I'm getting out of here. Heading for the elevator. I could have got there before him. Easy. But if he thinks he's going anywhere, then we move to page 20. Where he's ripping the door off of the elevator and pulling the elevator up out of the wall and through onto the floor in front of him. <laughs> and, like, um, I don't know, but I really like this sequence because he's a kid, right? And he's like, you know, I could totally get there before him, but you know what would be awesome? <laughs> it's like, <laughs> I can rip an elevator out of the- this ostentatious display of my strength. Because <laughs> he totally could have just grabbed him. Right, he's way faster than this guy and could have stopped him from getting into the elevator. But it's so much cooler to rip the door off of an elevator, pull the elevator up out of the out of the uh, um, the elevator shaft, rip it open, rip the guy out, and knock him out. <laughs> I mean, I gotta say, this kid, you know, is thinking like, you know, what's gonna work on the movies? Um, and <laughs> this is way better. <laughs> like, I want to watch this happen. Um, <laughs> So, anyway, I like that part. Um, we have the destruction of TV because TV's bad, and that um, is going to solve the problem. Um, and we end up with – we do get a happy ending, right, in the end. We have them walking down the street, part of the Macy's Day Parade with the Captain Marvel um, balloon above them, which I think is a nice touch. And I really like Fawcett City. I've not spent much time in Fawcett City, and I don't know what has happened to this place in the – the sort of lore of DC, but it's little um, tagline there. If you can make it there, you can make it anywhere. This was actually the first time it was named Fawcett city mm-hmm. um, was in this comic prior to that. It had always been New York um, or something like that. Mm-hmm. But when they wanted to kind of keep their heroes in fictional cities, they yep. kind of want to take it. And then when they moved these characters into the same universe after crisis on infinite earths, um, they couldn't put him in Metropolis. They couldn't put him in New York. So as kind of an homage to Fawcett Comics and their original publisher, mm-hmm. they just rebranded it Fawcett Comics. And then that was – Fawcett City. Fawcett City, yeah. Fawcett yeah. City. 
And then in the Shazam book that started in the 90s, early 90s, I think, um, it was called Fawcett City, and it was that for um, like two decades. Now, they've since undone that because in the New 52, Billy's story and Shazam's story takes place in Philadelphia. Mm. So they've kind of just undone that whole idea. Okay. Well, I, I, I just kind of liked it. Yeah. Um, and it was a neat thing. It was. It sort of felt like they were trying to create another sort of hard-boiled city in a way, kind of like Gotham. Yeah. And I was like, that sounds like a kind of a cool place. I might want to see Billy there um, growing up. And um, so, I'll try not to over nitpick this thing, but I mean, when when something loses me early on, like this comic did, I can't help but just nitpick as the thing goes on. Mm-hmm. But, I mean, you've got, you know, the Dr. Savannah showing up on the TV screen and chatting with his henchmen. So, first of all, while they acknowledge that the television is a brand new thing, not only do they have the television come up, but with no apparent camera in the penthouse, they're talking live back and forth. <laughs> and, you know, it's just these these little things that just sort of eat away at me. But, you know, if, if I'm going to pick up on the few things that I was kind of like, okay – Maybe that could be something, or that's interesting. I wish there was more of it. Uh, were things like the fact that when he jumps off the ledge, he he almost goes over the whole building and has to land by the penthouse coming back down. And that's one of only two or three references to the fact that he's just figuring out how to use these powers. Mm-hmm. And I like that. Yeah. What I really like, and I certainly kind of liked the implication of, but again, this story itself does nothing with, is... Billy's own reaction to when he says, I'll see you in jail or dead. Because when I read that, I was like, wait, what? (laughs) So I kind of liked that his response to him saying that was surprise as well. And then he has this little thought in himself. Well, does Captain Captain Marvel say that? Even though I am Captain Marvel, but I'm also Billy. And I'm like my I'm going like that's an interesting sort of way to go down. Like how much of this is. He becomes this bigger thing and how much of it is this bigger thing takes him over, but he then brushes it aside and goes, oh, well, what you going to do and moves along again. I don't know if that was something that was ever touched on. I guess it would be hard to do without feeling like it's um, tapping into to Hulk's shtick, but I felt like there was some interesting ways to go and some depth to be mined from what is a tossed off line. I don't know if they ever did. It was always something a little bit different based on who was writing it or the time. For a while, like I think in the Golden Age, they made it pretty clear that Captain Marvel was different than Billy Batson. He was a distinct personality. And it wouldn't surprise me if that thought bubble of Billy's response to that line was Roy Thomas commenting on that fact and kind of addressing that was him him putting his own statement on this, that Billy Batson wouldn't talk like that. And he's a little bit confused about where this voice is coming from. And after this book, when they, when they sort of retold his origin and they, they kind of set up who the new Captain Marvel was post crisis, they kind of reversed that and said that it, Billy retained his own personality in this new body, which was kind of cool, but, when I read some of those issues, I always felt like they were kind of making him very Spider-Man-like in that yeah. he, he was he had a kind of juvenile mentality, a teenager's mentality in his response to these things. Like he would – like Captain Marvel would literally fly and save you know, so the, some crisis in downtown Fawcett City and then be worried about making it to class on time and having to get to school and say the word. 
And it, it was like, okay, that's. I feel like that's a Spider-Man gimmick, and and I kind of like the idea that Captain Marvel, because he is supposed to have the wisdom of Solomon, it's hard for me to to rationalize that in a little kid's body or a little kid's personality. Well, I, I guess I guess here's the thing, and again, my point of references are few and far between, but Captain Marvel is one of the few things I have liked in the uh, DC animated films that have been based on the new 52. Granted, he's not heavily featured, but... What I do kind of like about him is that he doesn't have a child's mind in that, you know, he's stupid and doesn't know things. But what he has is a child's enthusiasm. Hmm. So when something happens and everyone is is standing there grimly nodding their heads, his reaction is to go, wow, that's so cool. (laughs) And and I, I kind of like that. If for no other reason, at least in those stories, it livens up the proceedings from this room full of. Everybody's just brooding, and I, that, that's part of the reason why, even though I have no particular attachment to this character, I am actually looking forward to um, the Shazam movie because I'm hoping that that might be our only shot to eject a little joy into uh, the DC film canon. I hope so. I guess that's about that's about it. I can't think of what I can add that that didn't sort of come out early on about what I didn't like about it. And, you know, as it went along, there were like little bits. And, th- and again, I'll say it again. The, the images are great. It's wonderfully put together. It's easy to follow. The characters are distinctive. There's some, there's the occasional um, close up of some characters, uh, which are really striking. I mean, Captain Marvel breaking through the window of the penthouse. Yeah. Is a terrific image. Early on, there's a there's a close up of the wizards, just his eyes, which I think is a gorgeous panel. Mm-hmm. So you know, there's some really good art in this. So on that level, I, I I can't really fault it. But just on a script level, I uh. <laughs> yeah, I I'm more forgiving of it than you are, but I also completely understand your argument because it's one that I've made for other other stories and other projects. I wish Roy Thomas had taken more liberties with that and just kind of understood what the what a modern audience would need to enjoy the story. But this was also just a one a one shot out of an anthology series. He wasn't intending this story to continue on with these characters. Um, that would have come later. Yes, but it, but in a way that that kind of almost irritates me more. Like he he used the fact that this wasn't going to count as as a way to just indulge what he wanted with little to no regard for the people who are actually going to pay money to read it. Yeah, that's true. I mean, I'm a little prejudiced. I like this character, Captain Marvel or Shazam. The idea of a little boy who gets to be a giant superhero is just really fun and appealing to me. Um, I think every little boy in in the world has had this dream. And so – and I think unlike Spider-Man where Spider-Man has the power all the time, the difference with this character – and I know I'm talking more about the character than this issue. Mm-hmm. Um, but that it's, it's a little intoxicating in a way, right? That um, this is it. This is that dream kind of played out on these pages. So did I like the issue? Um, I think it's fine in terms of laying out – the mythology that they feel they have to mail out for Billy, which is his sort of origin story. Um, I think they establish um, that his life is rough, how he got there, this what's going on with his uncle. Um, we get to learn what the basis of his powers are supposed to be. We get to see the sort of dire straits 
um, that he lives under. And then we get to see some of the kind of pluck that it takes to really sort of what does it mean to be a hero, right? And a hero is somebody who sees a problem and acts, you know, with their own safety, you know, in the background. They act selflessly for others. And Billy does this because really what is going to be the impact of Billy's world if all the radios get turned off, right? I mean, yeah. he, he doesn't own a radio. <laughs> um, like he, you know, he doesn't own any, he, like he sleeps under newspapers, right? Um, and so this is really a selfless act. And we get to see that not only is he going to try to address this, but that he's, um, he's dogged about it. Like he really wants to figure out what's going on and he has limited means at his disposal. And I like that we get to spend time with him before he realizes he has the powers. Yeah. Because for me that like, that's sort of the heart of pretty much any hero, right? Is that if you strip their powers away, you should still be able to see the core of who these people are and that the powers like that they would still be the same individual um, regardless of their powers. It's just the powers give them the ability to do the things that they couldn't otherwise do. And I think that that's what we – I think they do that. I think we get to see that. You know, We see that his, um, he's persistent. He's creative. He's determined. He believes in doing the right thing even when others disagree with what that um, decision might be. And he's willing to take action. He's not a bystander. And that you know, through it all, Billy's got – you know, a good heart. And he doesn't, I mean, also, by the way, the action sequences are fine. I think um, in terms of the stakes, um, I think they could have done a better job with elevating those. Um, I don't know that the threat of having all the radios turned off is what I would consider to be a Captain Marvel level kind of problem. Yeah. No. And again, that's just, that was the original story. That's that's going back to 1939. There was a different audience, but yeah, and I completely agree. His, his first outing should have been much grander and much more epic. But but, but that aside, here's the other thing is that I can forgive that. I mean one for the historical reasons. But also here's the thing, right? Superman or Spider-Man, whoever it is, right? They don't wait for an, a problem to show up that is um, equal to their ability – like that is grand enough to justify them intervening, right? They just intervene. Right? They show up. They take care of whatever the problem is. They stop the petty you know, bank robber or the guy who's trying to jack a car. Um, and so in this case, there's a problem. And the problem is that all the radios are going to get shut off. And that's a big deal. And Billy steps up and deals with it. And so I think that that's good. You know, Billy doesn't do what I just did. Right, He doesn't make a judgment of whether this event is worthy of his time. Right? It is because it's a problem and there's a bad man and nobody knows how to deal with it and he's going to go solve it. So do I like it? Yeah, it's fun. Sort of a fun little introduction to the character. I kind of want to see what happens with him with the radio station. You know, I want to see him continue to figure out what his mission is. I want to see him sort of struggling with trying to live up to these epic responsibilities that have been placed on his young shoulders. So you know, what I read – ultimately, the test for me for any comic is what I read the second issue. And in this case, I would. We talked a little bit about the publication history and how complicated that was and how mm-hmm. many different – like the, the all of the issues with the trademark and the copyright. And eventually, currently, this character is held and licensed by DC Comics. 
and he exists in the same world, the same universe, the same continuity as Superman and their other heroes. And even though I've read and seen some great stories teaming Shazam or Captain Marvel and Superman together, I'm always kind of of this opinion that they don't belong in the same universe, that those team-ups should be special occasions and not the norm. I don't want to see this character on the Justice League. No. Um, I want to see Earth-S when the Shazam and the Captain Marvel family, they were the only heroes of their universe. Mm-hmm. I liked that. It, it did make him more unique, so he wasn't just a second-rate Superman or a copy of Superman with slightly different powers. Um, it's hard. Um, I don't. I mean, I, I don't know that I would necessarily want to see him go to a different publisher, but I think it's really hard to have him in the DC universe with Superman, and and to have them be to have a reason for him to be there because there's nothing that he can do that Superman can't. And also, I think if you've got the two characters side by side, Superman's the more iconic of the two. Certainly to a, modern, to a modern audience, yeah. Yep. And you have to teach people who Captain Marvel is. And then when the answer is, after you've done doing that, you know, like, is that he's basically Superman just based on magic, not science. Um, quotation marks around the word science. <laughs> um, but the, um, I, I think that's, that's hard. And, and then to justify what you would need a second Superman for, um, you know, I think can be a little tricky. And so, I, I mean, I, again, I love this character. I think he's best when he's, um, and again, this is just sort of based on my personal experience with him. I like him in contrast to Black Adam. I think the two of them fighting over whatever it is that they're going to be fighting over is really fun to watch. I think when you throw Captain Marvel, Black Adam, and Superman into the mix, um, you're basically, you've, you've basically got a bunch of Kryptonians flying around, you know, because in, in many ways, Black Adam can feel like Zod. Yeah. Uh, I feel like. And so, so here's the thing, you know, it's, it, it's kind of like the X-Men universe for Marvel for me, mm-hmm. which is that I've always kind of felt like that the X-Men universe belonged on its own and did not belong, even though Wolverine sells comics whenever you put him on anybody else's book. Um, the, the mutants I don't believe belong in the main Marvel universe for a variety of reasons that we don't have to get into. But also, maybe it makes sense for, like you said, to have um, Captain Marvel um, not in the same universe as the rest of the DC heroes. Because I still, here's the thing: is I still want to have stories from this character. I just don't know that they make sense in the greater DCU. Um, right, right. Yeah, we we agree on that X Men thing. We've talked about that before. Yeah, and like, yeah, I don't think I would want. Captain Marvel or Shazam to go to a different publisher, but if he is being published by DC, I don't want it in the same universe. I want, if he's going to cross over with Superman and Justice League, that needs to be a momentous event where they cross over parallel dimensions. Yeah, you know where I think they could tell really great stories with him is they could really tell some cool period pieces with him. Oh, yeah, yeah. I mean, if they wanted to set a bunch of stories in the 20s and 30s, mm-hmm. um, which I think is even the twenties. I think would actually even be before the genesis of the character, um, if I remember correctly. Right, right. Um, but that would be awesome. Um, just take him back, put him in, you know, Great Depression era America. I well, mean, he could be. I mean, what they sort of established eventually. I mean, like, like Black Adam started out as the the Captain Marvel of 
ancient Egypt, 5,000 years ago. Right. And he had these powers stripped, and the wizard was always looking for somebody who was worthy of these powers. If they sort of reimagined it where it is a kind of generational legacy hero, then you could tell stories. Who was the Captain Adam – or the Captain – sorry. Who was the Captain Marvel during the American Civil War or right. during the, the Dark Ages? Um, I mean you could tell lots of different stories, lots of different versions of this character in different eras. Um, that, might, that might I'd, be interesting. I'd be on board for that. Um, I mean there would be like a um, – the Jazz Age, Captain <laughs> Marvel, Disco Age. <laughs> oh, I want to see Disco Age Captain Marvel. <laughs> um, anyway, yeah, I mean, yeah. I think it belongs in DC's hands. But here's the thing. <sighs> so let's say, for instance, you – not that this could ever really happen because of – all of the trade issues, right? But let's forget about Marvel's Captain Mar- Marvel for a second, mm-hmm. right? Yep. Let's say Marvel buys it. Let's say they buy Captain the rights to this character and they put him in the Marvel Universe. Okay. You put this character in the Marvel Universe and now you're telling stories that really nobody else on the team can compete with. There's really nobody else in that universe that I think and, and go ahead and disagree. Yep. I can hear well, it. No, go ahead. F- f- like play your thought out to me. So w- what I'm saying is that there's really no, for me, the, so what's the, <laughs> for me, what's the role of Superman, right? In the universe of, of the DC comics. Right. And for me, the, what the role of Superman is supposed to be is that he is supposed to be the best part of humanity because he was raised by the Kents. And that even though he was an alien come to, come to Earth, that he's supposed to have this inherent belief in the goodness of people, right? And that he can choose to make decisions that other people can't. That he can – he – when thing when the um, – sorry, I'm not being very articulate. <clears throat> when the um, – anyone else would make the decision just to kill somebody else, Superman makes a choice to keep them alive – because it's the right thing to do. Superman can always choose to do the right thing. And there's, you know, we refer to him as the Boy Scout, right? And that he kind of has this sort of scout's honor about how he approaches the world. And and I think that Billy incorporates all of that into his character. And the problem is, is you don't need both of them doing that. In fact, if you had both of them in the same room um, doing that, like you'd want to kill them. Um, one or the other that you could. Um, but the, and so I think if you put him in, like he would drive Tony Stark insane. (laughs) Um, you know, and I know that Captain America does a good chunk of that, um, with his sort of 1940s, um, kind of a, like sort of appeal, but there's a wide eyedness that a little boy brings to something that a soldier doesn't. Right. True. So whereas Captain Marvel, um, Captain Marvel, Captain America has that kind of moral grounding about the the right things to do. Billy's still a little boy, right? And so for him, killing things is abhorrent. You don't do it. You save them, right? And like that, he would have this sort of immaturity and this childishness and this like that. The if you place him in the Marvel universe where things are real and scary and people die all the time. I think Billy's perspective there 
you know, I, I, I think that he would drive the rest of the Avengers mad. Um, <laughs> and I think that would be fun to watch. Because, <laughs> <laughs> you know, you have a little boy on the team. Yeah. And, well, uh, I, was, I was going to say, I think a lot of the elements that we recognize in this version of Captain Marvel yeah. are, are are picked up by several members of Marvel and and uh, the the Avengers. You do have the earnestness and the forthrightness of Captain America, but as you pointed yeah. out, it's a it comes from a different place. Um, it is a different worldview. Um, you've got the power set in the mythology from Thor, right. um, with the sort of god of lightning, god of thunder, and and you've got the some of the some of the the youth and the the wide-eyedness of Spider-Man. Um, mm-hmm. Now, certainly, Billy Batson is a different kind of kid than Peter Parker. Yeah, that's fair. Yep. So, but uh, that would be an interesting crossover to see this, like, a very aw shucks, holy, holy cow version of Captain Marvel teamed up with Iron Man, Captain America, and the Avengers. And right. See how long it takes Iron Man before right. he just wants to slap him and put him in his place. Or corrupt him. Um, <laughs> or, yeah, or give right. him booze. Right, <laughs> try this. <laughs> and then you have a, like, could you have a sequence of a drunk Captain Marvel um, <laughs> saving the day? Um, um, it doesn't say he has the constitution of a particular <laughs> god or figure. So um, I, I, know, I know Zeus and Hercules like to party, so... <laughs> Oh, I mean, here's another thing, right? Put Billy in Asgard, right? <laughs> Thor giving Billy Batson a tour of Asgard, <laughs> right? I would buy all of that. Um, <laughs> um, all right. Uh, <laughs> um, good, good. Paul, thank you very much for appearing on this episode of the Secret Origins podcast. Where can people find you online, or do you have any uh, any projects that you'd like to to hawk to our to our listeners? Thank you, Ryan, and absolutely, I would love to hawk. <laughs> um, so, um, Ryan and I are actually both the writers of um, Red and Green, um, which can be found on Tumblr. Um, Red and Green it's a was a daily web comic, but um, is still plenty of funny jokes in there. Um, and I'm also the lead writer on a comic book called Armadillo Justice that's being published by Rising Sun Comics. Um, it hasn't been released yet, but there is a Kickstarter coming out. Um, and we're really excited about the book. So it's an action-based book um, for younger readers. So, do you, know the, for, do you have the address for that Kickstarter? Um, it's not up yet. Okay. Um, it will be launched um, at some point. But anyway, Armadillo Justice. Um, and thank you, Ryan, very, very much for having me on board. Thank you very much for being here. All right. Thanks. Nathaniel, where can people find you online if they want to hear more about you and your very negative and hateful opinions about their beloved characters? <laughs> my my negative and hateful opinions can be found on Twitter, Facebook, but primarily on YouTube where you'll find the Council of Geeks web series where I will rant and rave at your face. <laughs> in real time, in color. Darn right. I am particularly fond of the episodes that have me in them. <laughs> Yeah, they're okay. Decent, decent. All right, well, thank you very much for being part of this. And now, the ever-popular listener feedback section. Once again, I want to thank everyone who promoted this show on social media or left a comment about Secret Origins Podcast on Facebook, Twitter, or the WordPress page. 
Facebook likes came from Aaron Moss, Chris Ivey, J. David Weeder, Doug Zawissa, Gene Hendricks, Gord Tolton, Jerry Schroyer, Keith G. Baker, Siskoid, and Tim Wallace. Facebook shares came from Cord Industries and Siskoid's Blog of Geekery. Twitter favorites and retweets came from Arvind Chulin, sorry if I'm mispronouncing that, Between the Pages blog, Greg Araho, Joseph McGregory, Just Max, Keith G. Baker, Kevin Eleven, Cord Industries, Malcolm, Patricia R., Ronald Clark, Siskoid, and Stephen Bird. Got a lot of comments on the webpage. That's secretoriginspodcast.wordpress.com. Once again, I'm not going to read every part of every comment. I do invite and encourage my listeners to check the site and drop in on the conversation if you'd like. The first comment came from Siskoid, who runs Siskoid's blog of geekery and who you can expect to hear on an upcoming episode of this show. Siskoid picked up on the sort of wavering opinion of Gil Kane's art shared by me and Tim and said, It's okay to flip-flop on Gil Kane. I think he kind of flip-flopped on himself. I read an interview with him in Comics Journal once where he said he felt like a hack sometimes. Seems like a self-deprecating fellow, going by that House of Mystery story where he drew himself as a prima donna who gets trapped inside his work by demons after his editor rants about how poor the previous story was. Like a lot of Silver Age greats, his art by the 80s was pushed to an extreme. You'll either love or hate, sometimes shifting from one to the other in between readings. Like Infantino's, Ditko's, and Kirby's, love it or hate it, it's absolutely distinctive. It can't be anyone else. Uh, Sisko had also made some Blue Beetle recommendations if you haven't read much of the character. He supports the Len Wein, Paris Cullen stuff, as well as the Ted Cord stories published by Charlton, which is where Siskoid first discovered the character through the modern comics reprints. Next comment came from Ange, who runs the Supergirl blog, Comic Box Commentary, and who has got to be just ecstatic about the upcoming Supergirl TV show on CBS. Ange said, I got this issue years later in a dollar box of my local comic store, so I came to it post-solo series, Bwahaha JLA, and Ted's Murder at the Hands of Max Lord. I very much enjoyed the dual nature of this origin story, covering both Beatles in a single story, as opposed to the split issues of Golden Modern Origins coming up in this book later on. Ange also talked about Gil Kane's art, saying there were a number of artists whose appeal he, meaning Ange, didn't understand when he was a kid. And he, meaning Ange, mentions Joe Kubert, Steve Ditko, and Jack Kirby among them. But while they all grew on Ange and their greatness is assured, Gil Kane never made that transition for him. Uh, unfortunately, the irredeemable shag found out about this podcast, maybe because I asked him to be part of it, I don't know, um, but he left a comment. He had some very complimentary things to say about Blue Beetle and my guest, Tim Wallace, and then he posted a few other comments, saying, I hated the treatment Dan Garrett received towards the end of the Blue Beetle ongoing. He came back from the dead to battle Ted Cord, just didn't sit well with me. It felt like someone bringing back the Golden Age Superman after Crisis just to have him die in some unnecessary story. Thank goodness that never happened. Oh, by the way, happy 10th anniversary, Infinite Crisis. Shag also says, Believe it or not, the Scarab being of alien origin did not come out of left field with Jaime Reyes. The alien origins go back to the Ted Cord ongoing series. The only reason I know is that it's referenced in Who's Who Update 87, number 1, which I happen to be reading and taking notes for for some unknown reason now. Shag's reason, in case you didn't know, is for Who's Who Podcast's Update 87, Volume 1 episode of the Fire and Water Podcast, which just came out... 
well, it just came out today at the time I'm recording this. So definitely go check that out. Go to the Fire and Water podcast and find Who's Who Update 87 for more on Blue Beetle and tons of other great DC characters. And then Shag describes how Tim and I blew his mind by revealing that Brandon Routh's Ray Palmer on the TV show Arrow is totally based on Ted Kord, not the actual Ray Palmer. And finally, Shag said, Thanks again for such an entertaining episode. Looking forward to the next. So far, having Chris and Tim on the show has been fantastic. Can't wait for future guest hosts. I hear the guy guesting on episode 4 is completely brilliant, handsome, suave, and irredeemable. Well, of course, Shag is right, because episode 4 will deal with Firestorm the Nuclear Man, and my guest is brilliant, handsome, suave, and irredeemable. That's right, it's Michael Bradley of the Superman and Batman podcast. Look for that next week. And the last thing to mention is I got two more iTunes reviews, which is awesome. They're both five stars, which is also awesome. Uh, The first new review came from Gene Hendricks from the Hammer Strikes blog and the Hammer podcast, The review is titled Right Up My Alley and goes, One of the things that I have always loved is learning the backstory of characters, so you can understand why DC's Secret Origins series was one that I loved. Now there's a podcast about the series, and I'm learning more and more about these characters and the series itself. Wonderful. Well, thank you, Gene, for that review. These always mean so much to me to hear. And the last new review is from... Oh, it's from Shag. Well, alright, forget what I just said about how meaningful these are, I guess. Uh, Shag says, I love this podcast, blah blah blah. If you love DC superheroes from any era, this, then this podcast is for you. Covering one issue each episode from the 1980s Secret Origins comics. They really delve into the characters, blah blah blah, creators, blah blah, history, and fascinating tidbits. A rotating cast of guest hosts along with the main host, Brian, or something. Son of a bitch. Um, it's exceptional exploration of DC Comics history and its heroes. Subscribe today. Well, thank you, Shag, and you get the last word, and I just have to accept that. Uh, one more time, I want to thank all of my listeners for their feedback, whether it's a comment, a review, a retweet, or just subscribing to the show. Each one of those things means a whole lot to me, and they make the show better. And in case you needed a reminder, feedback for the show can be left at secretoriginspodcast.wordpress.com or the Facebook page at facebook.com backslash secretoriginspodcast. You can find me on Twitter at ryandaily01 or at blackcanaryfan or the username Count Druncula. Secret Origins Podcast is not affiliated with DC Comics. The views expressed on the show belong solely to the speaker. All music, audio clips, and quoted text are used for entertainment purposes and are believed covered under fair use. And since I make no money off this podcast, no copyright infringement is intended. Thanks for listening.
Stetson and his mentor travel the highways and byways of the land on a never-ending mission to right wrongs, to develop understanding, and to seek justice for all. In time of dire need, young Billy has been granted the power by the immortals to summon awesome forces at the utterance of a single word. <laughs> transforms him in a flash into the mightiest of mortal beings, Captain Marvel!